I wonder if any of the rest of you are lately have been waking up every morning with a big question mark on your mind, like, what in the world is going to happen today, and how should I react to it? Anybody? First thing when you wake up, what, right? I saw a post this week that, that indicated just the how unsure we are right now of what to do and how to do it. The, the post said, if you're being silent, you're not supporting the cause. If you're speaking up, you're supporting the cause incorrectly. If you're spreading positivity, hey, the world's not all sunshine and rainbows. If you're being a realist, why are you so negative? If you're for protesting, you're supporting violence. If you're against rioting, you're more worried about property than lives. If you're black lives matter, don't you know all lives matter? If you're all lives matter, don't you know all lives don't matter right now? Don't be stupid. Believing blue lives matter, you support corruption. Say something the wrong way, you're secretly racist. The post ended like this. What a confusing time we're in. All I know is Jesus is the answer and that we need to stop playing into the divide. Sin is systemic in our world. We need the salvation and transforming power of Jesus in our lives. My heart's been breaking when I, when I see the pain and the hurt. Yours probably has too. And then I think about God's timing. How many of you know God's timing is sovereign in everything? I even think about His timing in the passage we're in today. And I can't help but tell you there have been times I've been tempted to elude this passage, but I will not do it because it is God's Word and we are going to preach it. We're going to preach it in context, which is hugely important this morning. This, this passage, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. We, we've talked to husbands and wives. We've, we've talked to parents and children and now he's going to talk to bond servants and masters. And if you look at some translations, it says slaves, which right away, if you're like me, it, it brings up red flags in your heart. What's going on here? Okay? But I want you to read with me and walk with me patiently through this, okay? Ephesians 6, verse 5 Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that He who is both their Master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with Him. I preach this, A, because it's in God's Word. It's in the book we're going through. I didn't choose this right now. 
It's, it's where we're at. But I also preach it because I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation, either online or in person with someone, and you bring up the Bible. And sometimes one of the quick retorts is, oh yeah, is that the same Bible that condones slavery? And the, the Christian is supposed to, at that point, bow his or her head and walk away, saying, oh my goodness, I didn't know my Bible condones slavery. That, that's the expected response. But I want to say to you today, the Bible does not condone the slavery that it records. It does not condone it. And I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to say that. I'm going to explain to you why I believe that. So how does God look at slavery in the Bible? Well, number one, he, he saw it as part of a fallen, broken world a reality in a broken world. And often when it comes up in the Bible, you see him regulating it to make conditions better for those who are in the system. And I also believe the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ in particular planted seeds to destroy slavery and its cousin racism altogether. How many of you are picking weeds this time of year? <laughs> Man, there are two ways to go after a weed, right? Maybe more. I saw one guy with a torch. I didn't think about that this morning. But the two that are most common at my house, you try to, to tear it at the top, but what happens then? You, you just get a couple leaves, and then, then a couple weeks later it grows back, right? There's another way that takes a little longer but kills that sucker dead. You know what it is? You, you poison the roots so that it doesn't grow again. And, and I think those are two possible approaches to racism, slavery, other evils in the world. We can legislate things, and there's a place for law and order in our world. God establishes it, but often it only goes so far because the deeper problem is the sin in the human heart. The root is in the heart. The human heart is deceitfully wicked. So if you want to go after an institution that is wicked, you poison the roots in the human heart. And that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Now you hear that and you may look around and say, okay, if it, if it does that, why in the world do we still have these issues in 2020? We still have some folks who are racist. We still have slavery of different forms around the world. If, if the gospel transforms hearts, why is it still here? Well, number one, not everyone in this world has received the gospel of Jesus Christ in their hearts. And number two, not all who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ have allowed it to do its full, complete, transforming work in their lives. The fault is not with the gospel. The fault is with our response to it as human beings. So that said, you say that sounds great, but I still wonder, like, why didn't Paul try to tear down the, legis the, tear down the institution then? Like, why, why didn't he say, shut down slavery, masters, free all your slaves? Why didn't he do that? That's a good question. If you're an honest reader of Scripture, sometimes you have hard questions. I do. I have for my whole walk with, with God. Why didn't he? Pastor Paul reminded us, as human beings, we need a humility to our lives that says sometimes, I don't know why God didn't lead Paul 
to destroy it then, okay? I, I don't know. It's, it's important for people to hear preachers say that, right? I don't have all the answers. God does. I don't know. There's other things like that too, too, though. Have you ever thought about the existence of Satan himself? Like, why is he still roaming around wreaking havoc? Why didn't God just blow him to smithereens years ago? I don't know all the reasons why. What about divorce in our world? Most of us know that in the New Testament, the Bible gives us at least one or two valid reasons for divorce, right? Adultery by your spouse or an unbelieving spouse deserts a believing spouse. Does that mean that, that God like endorses divorce and he's excited about it like that's his ideal for the world? No. When, when the Jewish leaders talked with Jesus about that, he took them back to the garden, Adam and Eve, and he said, what God has brought together, let man not separate. That's the ideal. Why did he say divorce was allowed in certain circumstances? Because of the hardness of man's heart. Sometimes God acknowledges the reality of a fallen system in a world and His timing in dealing with it. We don't always know why it is, but slavery, I can promise you, is not His ideal for the human race. You want His ideal for the human race, you go back to the early chapters of Genesis 2. Man and woman created in the image of God. Acts 17 says all men came from one man. Adam and Eve, we all come from the same Root, that's the ideal. Okay? I don't know why he didn't lead Paul to tear it down then. But I want to give you a little context. I don't think this fully explains it, but the context of Roman slavery in the empire is important. So in our country, we often, our filter for slavery is the horrors of African-American slavery that our country has been a part of. There is absolutely no justification for the sin during that season of our nation that tainted this land. We'll talk more about that later. The slavery in the Roman Empire, while there was the occasional master who was brutal, was a very different animal. Many, many slaves in the Roman Empire, and they estimate that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, up to one-third of the empire. In cities like Ephesus, Corinth, or Rome, one-third of the people might be slaves. And one thing that separates it from African-American slavery in our country, people would volunteer to be slaves in the Roman Empire because it provided a more stable provision than being a, a worker for hire. And many masters treated their slaves well. They had rights. They, they, they didn't only do the work out in the fields or cleaning the, the house. They, they worked in all sorts of professions. In fact, if you looked at the average slave in the Roman Empire next to his master, you wouldn't be able to tell the different, difference. They, they came in many different social classes. It wasn't a social thing. It wasn't a racial thing. And many of them were released by the age of 30 and went on to surpass their masters in wealth and property, sometimes even acquiring other slaves of their own. Does that make it okay? No. Because what's, what's at the root of the degradation of slavery, regardless of how your master treats you? It's the idea of being owned by another human being. 
Don't hear me saying it wasn't sinful in the Roman Empire. I'm just saying it was different than what we think of. I'm going to get to how the gospel planted the seeds to destroy it later on, because that's an important conclusion to all this. But right now, as we look at his words to bondservants sitting in the congregation in Ephesus, they, they would come in to the service and maybe be sitting there. Some people are servants, some people are masters, some are neither. And Paul writes a letter to the church there. Today, the, the closest equivalent for us is employees, okay? How many of you are an employee somewhere? All right, I want to look here what Paul says about the value of work. This is important because I think some in our society, especially the socialistic movement, really look down on work. Wouldn't it be ideal if the government just provided for us? And I think some of what's behind that is work is this evil thing, right? But work was established before the fall in the garden. The fall only made it tough. Work is endorsed by God. My grandpa had a little picture on his nightstand. I remember when we sleep over it, I said, work is part of God's plan for man. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And he talks to the employees, the value of work. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. A commentator after commentator said that phrase, fear and trembling, what it means is respect for the position of your boss. Respect that he is in that position and you work for him and not just working for him. What does it say? As you would Christ. Christ. Imagine at your job if you did what you do as if you were doing it for Christ. You pour concrete. You're pouring a driveway. Imagine that's Christ's driveway. You cook in a kitchen at a restaurant. Imagine that meal is going to go out to the table where Christ is sitting. Let me bring it home. You're a stay-at-home mom. You, you love and disciple those kids. Imagine you're loving Jesus. You're a plumber. You, you fix that clog as if that's Jesus' house. You're a preacher. You preach that message as if it's for Jesus. You're a lawyer. You defend that client as if it's Jesus. I could go on and on. Does that not transform what sometimes feels like mundane day after day after day work? As you would Christ. goes on, verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. What's that mean, not by the way of eye service? Yeah. Yeah. Boss is watching. <laughs> Boss walks out of the room. <laughs> right? <laughs> R. Kent Hughes said it reminded him of the push-up class in high school. You remember it? The gym teacher's walking around. Up, down, up, down. And when he's walking this way, this half's just staying down. <laughs> But this half is going up and down. Then he turns this way and it flips. (laughs) He says, don't be that kind of employee because ultimately Christ is watching you all the time. And that's who you're serving in in your work. Don't don't forget that. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Good will. I, I hear in that a good attitude. But again, he says, as to the Lord. Attitude matters at your workplace. If you... Proclaim Jesus and you go to work and spread a negativity in your workplace, 
Ask yourself, how, how does that reflect on Christ? How how's my attitude reflect on the fact that they know I claim to know Jesus? And this last verse is important. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Listen, some of you have bosses that, that notice when you do well, and they, they take care of you either verbally or they give you a bonus or something. Some of you have bosses that probably do not. Especially in that situation, remember that one day all that work you do You're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to reward you for every bit of hard, excellent work you did for him, whether your boss noticed it or not. What a moment that will be when we stand before the Lord. I blew it in this area once as a young man. I learned some hard lessons as a 19-year-old. Some of you have heard this story. I got a job at a factory where my my job was to sand a, a piece of metal on this power sander, and I got hired, I was excited, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be great to bring my boombox in with my Christian cassette tapes, and, and so I bring it in, which in and of itself is not a big problem, except I'd show up day after day after day, five minutes late, with my Christian music, and all day long, I'm jacking up these metal pieces. Not, I, I was not getting them right. I was not putting in the focus and the excellence that that job needed. And, and I became clearly aware of that the day my boss called me in and fired me. And I went to Mill Hollow, a place where we had a lot of family reunions growing up. And I cried. And I'm like, man, I blew it. That was a learning experience for me. It's not enough to play Christian music or talk Christian talk. You go in there, you want to do work and show up on time that reflects that I I know Jesus. I read a story about a prince of Poland that that called Harold Okenga. He was pastor of Park Church in America, a Christian, Christian church. He called him over to his property in Poland, this Polish prince, and he said, you see that man right there? He's a Christian and he's the hardest worker on my property. He's the reason I called you because a a man who works like that, I want to find out more about his religion. Wow. The man's hard work led him to explore Christ more. Does does mine? Does yours? I talked about this with a friend this week who who God has been laying it on his heart to to leave his, his position. And one of the things we were wrestling through is he's ready to go. He wants to obey God, but but should he just walk in there and say, I'm done? Or should he turn in a two weeks notice? And what we talked about was, if you were the boss, what would you like? Would you like an employee to just come in and say, I'm out of here? Or would you like that two weeks notice? Which is going to reflect better on Christ. And he said, that's what, that's what we're going to do. How's my work reflect Christ? I want to invite you guys to do something we don't always do in here. Pull out your phones, if you got internet, and Google praying hands. It's a piece of artwork you've probably seen by Durer. That's the last name, D-U-R-E-R. Go ahead, take a second and Google it. While you pull that picture up, whether you have it on your phone or you can envision it in your mind, I want to tell you a story I heard about that picture. Now, I've got to be honest. There are about five different stories about it, so I don't know if this is true, but just take it as an illustration, okay? It's powerful as an illustration, at least. Albrecht Durer was the, the artist who, who made that. 
that famous piece of art. And he had a brother named Albert. Now that alone makes it confusing. Albrecht and Albert. We'll try to keep this straight. Albrecht and Albert grew up in a family of about 18 kids. 18 kids, and their dad worked hard. They both loved art, Albert and Albrecht. But they knew their dad could never afford to send them to the Art Institute at Nuremberg. So Albrecht and Albert made a deal. They were laying in bed as kids in their full crowded bed, and they said, hey, how about this? One of us will go work in the mines, and we'll fund the other one to go to art school. And then if the one in art school starts to do well and starts to sell his work, then we'll trade so the, the second one can go. And so they made the deal, and Albrecht went to Nuremberg and started doing great work, passing his professors and selling things. His work was going out. He's making lots of money. And Albert was in the mines for four years. It came time to celebrate what had happened and make the, the transfer. And Albrecht was there, the artist, and Albert, the one who had been in the mines. And Albrecht stood up and thanked Albert for all of his work in the mines and said, now it's your turn. And Albert started crying. He said, no, brother, I can't. During those four years in the mine, my fingers were crushed more than I can tell you. And I now have arthritis so badly, I can hardly hold the cup that we're trying to hold at this toast, much, much less a, a paintbrush. And some believe that that picture of worn, tired, weary hands are, are Albert's. The hard-working hands of a man working for the glory of God, for his own provision, and the provision of his brother. So every time I look at that image now, I'm going to think of the, the nobility of work that, that glorifies God and looks to Him and provides and, and even provides for others. It's a good thing when, when it's offered to God. Don't underestimate your work. So now we get to the end. How, how in the world does the Bible that talks about slavery plant the seeds for its destruction and the destruction of, of racism? As I said at the beginning, it's the proactive power of the gospel in people's hearts. Right in this same passage, Paul did something revolutionary. He told not only the servants how to behave, he told the masters how to behave. He's looking at the masters in the church and saying, listen, verse 9, do the same to them. To your servants. In other words, if you want respect and sincerity from them, you give it to your servants. He wanted them to realize they are equals. He, that's why he looks at them and says, you have the same master. He says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. He's saying, masters, you are no better than those servants you have. You both answer to God, and you better treat them in light of that, because one day you're going to stand in front of him too. Don't threaten them. Don't threaten them. Even in the Old Testament, which talked about slavery sometimes, three verses, Exodus 23, 12, masters are told to rest their slaves. When you take the Sabbath, your slaves get rest too. Master would be punished if a slave was killed, Exodus 21, 20. And the slave was to be set free if he or she was abused, Exodus 21, 26. He's making the, the system better. 
Not to mention, the Bible does speak clearly and boldly against slavery as we knew it in America. Want to hear? Paul, the same one writing this passage, says in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, The law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and he goes on, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Slave trading is spoke, spoken against clearly by the Apostle Paul. Even in the Old Testament, Exodus 21.16, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. That is Old Testament. Okay? Deuteronomy 24.7, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. So one of the scourges on American history is when slave owners pick up their Bible and say, we endorse slavery. That happened back in the day. They didn't know their Bible. Eventually, as I said, the gospel and the good news of Jesus planted seeds to destroy it altogether. I, I think of it, the gospel, almost like a Trojan horse. If, if, if slavery and racism is this city with an awful strong wall around it, the gospel shows up in a Trojan horse, which looks pretty innocent. But then that Trojan horse, if you know the story, it gets in the city and the, the soldiers come out and start tearing the place down. That is what the gospel does. You say, what are the, sold, the soldiers in the gospel that tear down these strongholds? Well, well there are a couple. Galatians 3.26 so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are equal in Christ Jesus. That is something that will tear down slavery and racism. Philemon, the whole book, did you know that Philemon was a slave master? And Paul encouraged him to welcome back Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. Listen to what Paul said. Welcome him back, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's getting after Philemon's heart. Welcome him back as a brother. So it's almost like what Paul was doing was, was notching the tree with his axe so that it could be knocked down in due time. I want to give you a couple examples in history of how these truths have, have moved people, Christian people, to be proactive on fronts like this. I think the Christian church is at its best when it's proactive. A lot of what I see these days is people reacting after the fact, after the world is, is calling something out. The best of Christian history is when the church is proactive at the front, leading the way, showing what unity and equality looks like. William Wilberforce is one man I think about. He was in British Parliament. A verse that inspired him was Acts 17.26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
That conviction gripped him. We all came from the same man. So he's looking around at the slave trade in the British Empire. And he worked his whole life in Parliament to dismantle it. He was going against the culture. He didn't wait for the culture to say this is wrong. Everybody around him, many of them, fought against it. But he was standing up. He saw the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire in 1807. And three days before he died in 1833, he saw those slaves set free. This guy was five foot three, 77 pounds due to sickness in his life. I thought about those dimensions. Where's Liz? Powerful things come in small packages. <laughs> when, when God, yeah, that's it. When God is in the picture, right? I want you to hear some quotes from this Christian. The gospel changed his heart and then he brought it to bear in politics in his country. If to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be a fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. He also said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. I like this one. If you're young, we are too young to realize that certain things are impossible, so we will do them anyway. Last one from him. What a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on the Bible instead of the standards devised by cultural Christians. I also like that he was encouraged by John Newton. Most of you know he wrote Amazing Grace because John Newton was a slave trader on a slave ship, but God got a hold of his heart and turned him around. In this country, my favorite president of all time, Abraham Lincoln, he was also inspired by God's word. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong, slavery, history will find cause to revere the justice and goodness of God. He, he wrote to a friend one time, said, In 1841, you and I had together a tedious low water trip on a steamboat. You may remember, as I well do, that from Louisville to the mouth of the Ohio, there were on board ten or a dozen slaves shackled together with irons. That sight was a continual torment to me. Two more. I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. My favorite one from him, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. <laughs> Last but not least in this list, and we could go on with other Christians, Martin Luther King Jr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Listen to him. The God whom we worship is not a weak and incompetent God. He is able to beat back gigantic waves of opposition and to bring low, prodigious mountains of evil. The ringing testimony of the Christian faith is that God is able he also said, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. Amen. He said, by opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. This experience which Jesus spoke of as the new birth is essential if we are to be transformed. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving way. Spirit. 
Three more. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Last but not least, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? I think what drove each of those men was deeper than the surface. It was heart level transformation that came from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge us to all look deeper. Our our world offers measures that may make some change, but are surface level compared to the change that comes when we really receive and believe the gospel. One of the raging debates that just was inflamed again this week, should I kneel during the anthem or stand? And I want to say whichever side of that you fall on, kneeling during the anthem The change that will come from that pales in comparison to what can happen when you kneel before Jesus Christ and submit your life to Him. Standing during the anthem, whatever change that will bring pales in comparison to what will happen if you truly take a stand on Jesus Christ and the truth of His gospel and live it with your neighbor. We've got to go deeper into God's word. Because God's word and the power of the gospel during Bible times brought much needed protection to slaves. In time, it led to the overthrow of slavery in in much of the world. And today, I believe it continues to bolster those who fight against slavery of all kinds. I want to close by saying this. We have to go deeper than trying in our own human power to act nicer. It's deeper than that. We need to be spiritually raised from the dead and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This same book in Ephesians says it like this. Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus. Father, that's the change. We we can decide on other, other actions, but this is the deep change that is needed in every one of our hearts. Some in this room may need to, to admit their need for a Savior for the first time this morning and cry out in confession, Lord, I've been trying to do it on my own, but I'm a broken, dead sinner. I need life in Jesus Christ. I need to receive that sacrifice where He died for my sin and the power of His resurrection. I invite Him as my Savior and my Lord. Help me to walk forward in His power. 
being proactive to show this world what unity and truth and love looks like. Some of us in the church, all of us at times, need to open our hearts and say, God, examine me. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Show me if there's any part today where I need to allow the transforming power of the gospel to to come in. Help me to be like my Savior who is proactive in pursuing the lost who break down all kinds of walls. You go see tax collectors and sinners, people the religious folks would never hang out with. At the, the well with the Samaritan woman, he's knocking down racism and sexism talking to a woman in a day when that scandalized many men and talking to a Samaritan when many Jews hated them. Lord, help us to walk in the footsteps of our Lord. Help us have a deep appreciation of the length He went to to reconcile us to His Father and then to think about, God, how how do You want me to go out and help show and bring reconciliation in this hurting world? God, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.